Hi, I'm Pete Price, and this is the best of Pete Price. Ange McCartney was 93 years old at the weekend just gone. Ange and Ruth are dear friends of mine. They, of course, are related to Paul McCartney. Here's our interview, which was a while ago with Ange and Ruth McCartney, the best of Pete Price. Ladies and gentlemen, can you imagine just some time with Ruth and Ange McCartney and the lovely Martin, who's married to Ruth, and some Beatle tracks? What a great way to spend a couple of hours. I think it's great, but I need some more ingredients. The other ingredients are at the other end. Ruth and Ange, hello, you two. Hello, Pete. Hello, darling. Isn't this fun? It's great. Splendid. It's a long time since we spent some quality time together. It is. Too long. It, it, it is. Ange, did you ever think in your wildest dreams when you were pregnant with Ruth that you would finish up where you are today? Oh, indeed not. Anything but, I can assure you. Where did you think your life was going to go? Uh, in the toilet. Down the toilet rapidly, actually, because... Uh, Shortly after Ruth was born, my first husband died in a car crash, Eddie Williams, and I was a widow, floundering and, you know, having a tough time. I used to take Ruth to a nursery in South Dean in Kirby every morning and put her in there and go and walk across the fields to work in Pure Chemicals on the Kirby Trading Estate. And uh, if I earned anything more than £5 a week, I had to go and declare it to Social Security and have it removed, the excess taken off my widow's pension. So that was lots of fun. But then came Bessie Braddock, right? Oh, yes. I was living in a house when Eddie was alive. The house belonged to his employers. So because he died, we had to get out. And I went after, I think, 46 different flats. And they'd open the front door and see me with a baby and say, no children, and just shut the front door in your face. And then my mum wrote to Bessie Braddock. Do you remember her, Bat Battling Bessie? Yeah. The MP? My mum wrote to her and said, my daughter's in a terrible predicament. And, uh, you know, I wondered if there's anything you could do. And she replied... Very quickly, <coughs> actually, I think. Yeah, on uh, House of Commons letterhead and said, tell your daughter to take this letter to the housing committee and they'll give her the key to somewhere to live, which I did. And I got a flat on Quernmore Walk in, on the Kirby Trading Estate. So thanks to good right. old Bessie, she saved my life. Do you know that there's a statue to Bessie Braddock? I do, do you know? The, the, um, yes, it's wonderful. Did I, you see it I last time you were here? But I'll make a point of going to see it next time and having a photograph taken of it. I've got a photograph of it in my diary, yeah. but uh, I, haven't, yeah. I didn't have time last time I was in Liverpool to go and see everything. And I believe there are mm. two statues of John and Cecil Moores too. Oh, I love those. Every time you go past, someone's put a newspaper under the arm and a ciggy in their mouth. Really? Oh, that's great. Oh, that's lovely. I, they were my boss. I used to work for Littlewoods for many years. You know there's a, also um, a statue of Eleanor Rigby that was done by Tommy Steele. Oh, no, I didn't. He did it, and um, it's beautiful, and he donated it to the city. He paid for it and donated it and, and did it himself. Bless him. How oh, nice. I saw somewhere on Yeah, it was great. I yeah. saw somewhere on the internet that someone's found her little Bible that she used to make inspirational notes in the back of. So that, Oh, that's out oh there. right. Yeah, that's out there somewhere. Right. Um Ruth, tell us a bit about Martin. Is he the seventh husband? 
Um, the, ni- the ninth husband, the 14th German. No. Uh, he is my, he's my <laughs> final husband, I hope. That, that would be my decision. I'm not sure if he agrees with that most days. But, no, Martin and I met at a funeral in Munich, believe it or not. And um, wow. he's, I know, he's an accomplished musician and producer and all of those things and, and graphic arts designer. And he's definitely uh, the Renaissance man. I just, one of, one of my greatest regrets is that he could never sit down and have a bevy with John Lennon because the two of them would have got along like a house on fire to uh, left brain or is it right brain. So, no, he's, he's my best friend. He's my hubby. He's uh, responsible for a lot of the stuff that you see, you know, branding-wise with the tea and the wine and the book and the show and all that stuff. So couldn't get... He's looking at me, me through the glass now going, you are. He actually does it for a crowd. <laughs> for a crowd, he does a great Scouse accent. He, sometimes I'll say something, he looks at me, goes, you soft or what? <laughs> Why does the marriage work? I think we just know that nobody's perfect. Well, I am, but, you know... Um, nobody's perfect and we just agree to give each other he loves to run on the beach and I ask him to run for me and burn off some extra calories because I can't be bothered and uh, you know he is all things creative and I'm I'm a bit creative I mean I've written a few songs and that but you know I'm the spreadsheets and the finances and the business and the contracts and I think it works as a business partnership as well as it works as a marriage um, I like to do the business and he likes to do the creative. I like to cook and he likes to eat it. I like to cook and he doesn't like to wash dishes. Oh, oh yeah. Did I say that? Yeah. That's where I come in. <laughs> Ange, did you, uh, in the plan, the great big scheme of things, I know you sadly you lost your husband, but did you want more children? No, didn't want this one, actually. But there she was. Oh, right. (laughs) No, I didn't want to have... I wasn't maternally instinctive at all. But once this little thing was born, we... I still... This sounds nuts, I know. I can still remember the very second she was born. And when Mm. the nurse picked her up and wrapped her in a towel and gave her to me, I looked underneath and I saw these very long folds of skin on her legs. It was like the Michelin Man. You know, fold after fold. And I thought... God, I'll have to cover those up. I can't show anybody those. I didn't realise, as I know now, that obviously her bones were going to grow long <laughs> enough to stretch out the flesh and she would be tall. <laughs> I used to say to her, was, was my father tall? And she says... I don't know, it was dark. <laughs> i tell you what's interesting about you. you there many people will be listening now whose mum and daughter are best friends. You you two go one step further. You, you've you actually been inseparable virtually all your lives, haven't you? Pretty yeah. much. Just a few weeks apart here and there, but not much. It's only because she can't find a blanket big enough to wrap me and leave me on the church steps. I know, I keep threatening to put her up for adoption. <laughs> <laughs> but they keep bringing her back. Ruth, why do you think it works? Why why, why do you think this relationship, which is, is incredibly intense as friends... I know, you always say that, but we, we're so inside it, we don't see it like that. I mean, we do get on each other's nerves at times. And she'll, if she starts by saying, Mum, or, oh, Ange, I think, oh, God, what have I done now? <laughs> so, yeah, we do get on each other's wick occasionally, but not often. Mm. And we sort it out and talk it out, and there you are. Everything's about communication. Yeah. Yep. And a sense of humour, too. If you, can, if you know somebody's doing something daft or you've got an opinion about... You know, you think they should be doing something better. If you can couch it in the terms of, 
you know, bloke walks into a bar and you describe what they're doing and they go, oh, hang on, that's me. Um, I think wrapping things in humour mm. is far more a, a kinder way instead of, you know, nagging on saying, well, I think, nah, 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 nah. you know, nobody's ever right. I mean, you can only live in your own skin. Except and, me. Except her. Except me. <laughs> um, but I think, you know, just honestly, open communication. If something's starting to get on your nerves, say it now. Don't bottle it up. Don't don't wait for a row. And tell us how you met Jim. Jim um, McCartney. Well, I years ago at Butlin's Holiday Camp in Portelli, Feely Wheely, I uh, shared a chalet with Bette Robbins. Well, she was Bette Dana then. And she and I became friends. And over the years, we lost touch with each other. She married Mike Robbins. And, of course, she had Kate Robbins and Ted Robbins for her children. And, and many uh, more. And many, Jane many, and many, Emma, yeah. Amy. And we all lost touch. And then... Uh, Mike Robbins ran into my sister Joan one day in a store in, in, I think it was Broadway, Norris Green. He went in there and he said, can anybody tell me the way to uh, Broad Lane Cemetery? I'm, I'm on my way to a funeral and I'm late. And my sister piped up and said, oh, gave him directions, go out of here and turn left and whatever. And he said, you're not Angela, are you? And she said, no, I have a sister, Angela. He said, God, you sound exactly the same as Angela. And they sorted that one out and found out that, yeah, I was friends with Bet and Mike at Butlins all those years before. So they exchanged phone numbers. We eventually got in touch. And Bet and I got together and she said to me, oh, you must meet Uncle Jim. And I said, Uncle Jim, why? And she said, don't you remember Uncle Jim and Auntie Mary and their two little sons, Mike and Paul, which was many years before. And in those days, when I first knew her and went to visit and Auntie Mary and Uncle Jim and the two little boys came. The little boys were in turnover top socks and little grey jummies with the metal buttons, <laughs> short pants and uh, that was them and of course this was 1964 we'd moved on to and I said oh my goodness I never realised so she ultimately organised a meeting for me to go with Ruth to her house in Bebbington, she was living with Auntie Millie at the time and put Ruth to bed with her babysitter and off we all set in a taxi through the Mersey Tunnel to go and visit her Uncle Jim at Rembrandt in Heswell, Gayton, actually. And when Uncle Jim opened the door, I just knew in my heart, it just flashed, I just knew this this was the man for me, I was going to marry him. It sounds nuts, I know, I've always said, people must think I'm making it up, but I wasn't. And uh, we just had that spark, we were both lonely, we both needed somebody to take care of us. Jim was living in a sort of hold-up, hiding from the fans because they'd be outside day and night. And his arthritis had begun to take hold of him badly and he couldn't drive. But uh, he got me to bring Ruth over subsequently and come and stay the night. And, and uh, that was when he asked me to marry him. So there we are. It moved rapidly. Wow. Did you ever realise what you were getting yourself into? I know the relationship with Jim was amazing because uh, I, I saw you together, but with the Beatles and all the fan and etc. did you understand any of that? I, I mean, I realised what was going on with the Beatles in the early stage and, of course, in Liverpool we were all very proud of them and what they were achieving. And, uh, still are. Yeah, still are to this day. And No, I had no idea. And Jim just said to me, you know, you're going to have to learn to not tell anybody anything, keep your trap shut, and, which bounced off on poor little Ruth when she started school. I, I said, you must never tell anybody your phone number. And 
If anybody ever asks you, is Paul home? If he is here, it's okay. It's only a little white lie. We say no. And then, of course, what, shortly after that, she fell and broke her leg. And the ambulance driver said, what's your name? She said, I'm not allowed to say. What's your phone number? I'm not allowed to say. <laughs> <laughs> so that you know, came back and bit me in the bum. But uh, eventually, one of the nurses in the children's hospital said, oh, this might be that McCartney kid that's just come to live in Heswell. So they phoned the Heswell police station and they duly sent around Mr Plod, the policeman, who came, knocked on the door at Rembrandt. And when I opened the door and saw a policeman, I thought, oh, what's she done now? <laughs> and he said, have you got a little uh, little girl that was going to the beach this afternoon? I said, yes. He said, well, it's all right. She's broken her leg. She's OK, but she won't tell anybody her name or her phone number. I follow. You know what, Pete? I still follow crew member instructions and lighted placards. <laughs> I've got to ask, how long did you uh, court Jim before you met Paul? I don't think it was a question of courting. Uh, I met him the first time when I went through with uh, Beth and Mike to visit. In August. And then, yeah, and then a week or two later he called me and sent a taxi for me to work and then to the nursery to pick up Ruth and then pick up my mum and come through the tunnel and visit and stay the night. And that was the night he asked me to marry him. Oh, I'd had one other meeting with... We'd all gone to the pub somewhere with all the cousins and the aunties, and that was for them to give me the once-over and see what they thought. So I must have passed the test all right, because uh, he went ahead, and I was playing the piano in Rembrandt, and he came and stood behind me and put his hands on my shoulders and said, I want to ask you something. And I looked up at him and I said... The answer is yes. He said, I haven't even asked you the question yet. <laughs> <laughs> so we went and sat on the couch and discussed what, you know, possibilities. He said, well, you can see, obviously, I, I'm lonely here and, you know, I'm afraid to go out and uh, I need somebody to take care of me. My head, health is starting to deteriorate and it won't be easy, but do you want to be my housekeeper or do you want to live with me or do you want to get married? That was romantic. <laughs> so I said, well, I'd only go for marriage with a four-year-old child. I don't want to... I mean, it was so old-fashioned in those days. I didn't want anybody to think I was living over the brush, as they called it, in Liverpool. So he said, well, all right, then that's settled. We'll get married. And shortly after mm -hmm. that, the phone rang, and it was Paul, obviously. I heard him say, hello, son. Yes, she is. Yes, I have. Yes, we are. Hold on, I'll put her on the phone. So the questions were obviously, <laughs> is she there? Have you asked her and is she going to? So he handed me the phone and I think Paul was as nervous as I was. He said, hello, uh, you sound very nice. What a trite thing to say. <laughs> I guess he was stuck for words for once. So, yeah, he jumped in the car and came up to Rembrandt, which took about three hours in those days from London, before the motorways were hooked up. And I was in the kitchen washing up dishes and he came in through the garage and he was all dressed in a suit and a tie and uh, brogue lace-up shoes, all formally dressed. And he said, oh, hello, I'm Paul, and offered his hand for me to shake. <laughs> I said, yeah, I think I know that. I'm talking to Ruth and Andrew McCartney. Ruth, what was your first memory of that Beatle thing? What was it? What's one that stayed with you? It was in Malmesbury Road, which is near Strawberry Road, and my cousin Geraldine, who's two and a half years older than me, was a Beatle fan, so she'd be six and a half or seven, and I was four. And 
I was made aware of the Beatles through Geraldine and then her brother Peter Archer, my, my cousin Peter, who still lives in, in Liverpool. And he, in fact, had a very early number three or number four membership. Um, oh, and just show me number six membership um, card to the Cavern Club. And so, you know, he was a teenager and he would come home and talk about this group he'd seen at the Cavern Club. And it sort of went in one ear and out the other because, you know, when you're four, really nothing like that's important. But fast forward to the night when um, Jim proposed to Ange and Paul jumped in the car and he came up to Haswell and I was upstairs asleep and he said, well, where's Ruth? Where's this little kid I've heard about? So Ange said, well, she's asleep. He said, well, go and get her, wake her up, get her out of bed. So Ange brought me down and put me in his lap and I had little pyjamas on. I was, you know, it's all like, you know, when somebody switches the light on when you're fast asleep. And I remember sort of focusing and I looked at him and I thought, oh, hang on, I know him. And much to everyone's embarrassment, I said, oh, I know you. You're on my cousin's wallpaper. (laughs) (laughs) So he's like, hang on, what wallpaper? I said, yeah, my cousin Geraldine's got a Wendy house and you're on the wallpaper with three other fellas, three other blokes, you know. And uh, so he said, oh, well, one of them's Ringo. I heard you've just had... um, an operation. I said, yes, I was in Alder Hay. And I had, look, do you want to see my scar? Because I'd had my a life-saving operation at Alder Hay. And I'm so glad to see that, you know, Paul and, and Yoko are all behind it and everything. And uh, I had my kidney removed. So there I am, you know, whipping up my side of my pyjamas, showing him my scar. And he says, oh, Ringo's got scars on his tummy. He had his appendix out and he's had this, that. And he was in Birkenhead Children's or wherever it was. So we just sat around talking about beetle wallpaper and scars. Really, wasn't wasn't that exciting? Very exotic. Yeah. <laughs> and were you thrilled when Jim said, "Let let me adopt Ruth"? Oh, absolutely, yes. We went on a honeymoon. We went to the Bahamas where the boys were filming Help, and I had got Ruth on my passport, but I also had um, my marriage certificate to go through customs and you know all that business because I'd just changed my name. And so I got through all right, and when it got to Ruth, they said, no, we haven't got her on the passenger list. I thought, well, I'm not going on the plane without her. And it was a mix-up because her name was still... Williams. Yeah, Ruth Ruth Williams, Williams, and mine was Angela McCartney by this time. And it got sorted out, but then when we got... Jim was saying, this is bullshit, you know, that word I can't say. And um, when we got to the Bahamas and got settled in, Jim said, as soon as we get home, we're going to get Ruth adopted and have that my name and none have none of this nonsense anymore and it wasn't just that it was the very fact that you know he really took it to heart he loved it very much and it was such an age difference for him too you know he was 62 60 uh, yeah I was four 60, and yeah. he was 62 yeah and he was wonderful with her he used to play with her and She'd wear him out, actually, in the garden, and the, he bought her one of those great big bouncy ball things. Do you remember those big red balls that people would bounce, up, yeah. bounce around the garden and say, come on, Dad, do you want to get on? He'd say, uh, no. Well, I, you know, the poor, the poor man had arthritis <laughs> to beat the band. He had yeah. really rheumatoid arthritis and osteoarthritis. And I'd sort of stand in front of his armchair and hop up and down or do, you know, we used to make um, skipping games out of lazy bands we'd tie them all together and do these hopscotch skipping games and I'd stand in front of him and say bet you can't do this and he's like yep I I bet I can't (laughs) but he he gave me my love of the English language of vocabulary of crosswords of all those things so he was a great great dad great dad and 
Let me ask, did the press, were they kind to you or... Yeah, they were they all right. Did they you at all when you first yeah, got married? Yeah, well, we, we tried to keep it quiet. Jim was friends with one journalist that and he let him know and said, you can come on the night we got married. He said, if you come over tomorrow morning to Rembrandt, I'll have something to tell you. But by this time, the taxi driver who had taken us to Carrog to get married in North Wales had told somebody who told somebody else and it had got on, onto a journalist. And a whole host of journalists came the next morning. So uh, we were quite gracious with them, you know, and I went out in the kitchen to make, you know, inevitably more tea. And one of these journalists came out and tried to get fresh with me, and I was terrified. And, I mean, now I'd have just poured the tea over him or <laughs> hit him where it hurt. But I was terrified to make a wrong move in those days. I just, you know, moved out mm. of the way quickly and got back into the lounge. Uh, but generally, no, everybody was very nice, and I still hear from one or two people. Ruth, growing up, um, did you handle it, or did it? Was were you in awe of it at, at any stage? I know you're not now, and I know you can handle the industry because you're in it, but were you at any stage gone, whoa? Not really from a Beatle perspective. I think the first time it hit me in the whoa stakes was in about 1972 and I had developed a, a mad crush for the Partridge family's David Cassidy and I was bugging Paul going, oh, can you, do you know him? Can you ring him up? Can you get me his phone number? Because I, I was 12 by then. And bear in mind, you know, the Beatles, I was born in 1960 and the Beatles, for the most part, were born in 1940, 1942. They were like my older uncles, so I didn't get what all the squealing and screaming was about because... These were just four blokes who used to come through our house and some of them you'd do the laundry for and make a cup of tea and that was that, you know. But then along came David Cassidy and then subsequently Donny Osmond and then I started to really understand. I got the, whoa, now I get it. And Paul rang um, when Cassidy was in London and he was staying at the Dorchester um, under an alias and Paul had somebody find out what it was and he rang up and he got through to the room and Cassidy answered the phone and we were in the little phone, the little hatch under the stairs where we had the, the downstairs phone and um, I heard him get through and I heard Cassidy's voice and, hello and, he, and Paul said um, hello, he said uh, this is uh, Paul, Paul McCartney of, um, of the Beatles, I'd like to uh, speak to David Cassidy if possible and Cassidy went, yeah, and this is Duke of Edinburgh, and hung up on him. He thought it was a practical joke. So I was just yeah. heartbroken. I was like, oh, that was him, that was him. I just heard his voice, uh, ring back, ring back. And Paul was too embarrassed to ring back. So anyway, about a week later, a whole package of LPs and posters and all that stuff came signed from Cassidy. And then subsequently, Tony Barrow, who had been the Beatles PR fellow, who was like, a, you know, an uncle to me, still is, he got hired by Cassidy to do PR for the tour, so I managed to get tickets and take my cousin Liz Harris and I to Manchester. And um, after the Cassidy show, we actually came to see you at Fagin's that night. And why, why did you love why did you love Linda so much? Well, I was in awe of her at first, and then when I realised what a down-to-earth girl she was, she loved to cook, and there was no pretense about her. She didn't really like wearing makeup. She didn't like getting glammed up. She thought it was a bit... Uh, she knew she had to do it for certain occasions. But she was truly, you know, what you call an earth mother. She loved to cook and 
do all sorts of stuff around the house, and she like she didn't mind cleaning up and stuff like that, and mucking out the horses and the dogs, cleaning up after the dogs and all that. And I just appreciated her sincerity and how she had to struggle to keep it together in the face of all the the haters. That's the right, yeah, the animosity that she got from fans. You know, be outside the house when they lived in Cavendish Avenue scraping her car as she was going through the gates and throwing tomatoes at the car and stuff like that. It it was very sad, and she was just so loyal and such a good mother that you couldn't help but love her. She was terrific. And, of course, you're involved with the the Linda McCartney Centre. You send money over from America. That's right, yeah. Well, not as much as I'd like to, but I'm working towards it as, as much as I can. We're hoping to get ahead with both the tea and the wine business. We've got a couple yeah. of other projects yeah. in the works with China that could be yeah. huge. Could, could you imagine me selling tea to China? What? <laughs> we'll talk about the wine and tea later. How long were you with Jim before he passed away? How long were you 12 together? Twelve years. Yeah, twelve yeah. and a half. Yeah. We were married in November 64 and he died in March, March of 76. Yeah. I remember... What a bad time you had after losing uh, Jim. I know you loved him very much and uh, cared very much. But then you 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 went in separate ways, didn't you? The Beatles did their thing, and you went down another road with Ruth. Um, did did that suit you? Well, it was it was the choice. The the uh, un- Hobson's choice actually. I had no choice. Yeah. But uh, you make the best of each situation, you know. And you know my motto is never let them see you sweat. Always look on the bright side of life and be terminally cheerful. I'm sure it must drive people crazy, but I'm not going to complain. I have complained once or twice, and I wish I hadn't done it. But uh, Because nobody nobody wants a fairy when she's 40. No, nobody wants you when you're miserable and moaning. But if you're cheerful, you've got a much better chance of being welcomed into people's homes and friendships and so on. What's that old saying? Life hands you lemons, you make lemonade. Ruth, tell us about you becoming a star in Russia. How the hell did that happen? I wondered that. Well, I was living in Munich at the time and um, a friend of a friend of of ours was a Polish makeup artist and um, he was gay and in those days it was not okay to be gay and he would come to Western Europe, because the, it was still communist everywhere. Communist Russia, Hungary, Poland, you know, Czechoslovakia, all of that. The wall was still up. And he would come to Western Germany um, to give seminars on special effects makeup and hair, and he would get invited to these things thrown by the Russian consulate or the Russian embassy or the East Germans or whatever, plus one. And he couldn't take his boyfriend, so he used to say to me, well, do you want to go with me and just be my, my muse, my friend, my date, my whatever? And so I met a bunch of Russians at one of these do's and I had started to make some inroads into making music and I got signed to uh, a division of BMG called Jupiter Records. And uh, one of these Russians said to me, oh, he says, you, do you have one video music clip? We have a television station in Russia. I said, no, no. He said, make one clip, send it to me. Here is my card. I will put in TV. I make you star. I invite you. You come. I'm like, yeah, okay, right, whatever. I'll get right on it. So I thought about it, and my ex-husband at the time was a film cameraman, and we had access to some film and some people and volunteers. So we made this little video for 600 Deutschmarks. <laughs> and I thought, well, what the hey? And I 
put it in DHL and sent it to Moscow. Didn't hear a thing for about three months. And then all of a sudden, all these faxes started coming through in Russian. Um, and I'm like, OK, I need to find somebody Russian because I have no idea what this says. And I'd been invited to go to Russia and sing and be on TV and do concerts and this, that, and the other. So we went through this whole rigmarole of, you know, getting visas and invitations and sitting by the fax machine for hours trying to get a line through to return because Russia was just fast busy. What's really funny is the, the dialing code, the country code for Russia is 007, <laughs> which was not lost on me. So we finally got all the paperwork done and they sent us two tickets on Interflug. So we flew to West Berlin and walked through the Berlin Wall through Checkpoint Charlie and got onto the eastern uh, Interflug to put to Moscow. And I got off the plane in, in Sheremetyevo in Moscow and there's thousands of people screaming and hollering and and I'm, I'm looking around the arrival hall thinking, God, I didn't see Madonna or Michael Jackson on my flight. Who the heck's coming into town? And they were all there for me because the promoter had done this whole number saying, McCartney comes to Moscow. We neglected to tell him it wasn't me. It wasn't him. It was me. So all these poor kids wow. turn out to the airport. But they had, they still have 14, uh, 11 time zones um, and 14 different. They broadcast to China and Cuba and North Korea. And there was only one television station. And my music video, God bless them had been on rotation for three months, 14 times a day. So, you know, instant stardom, just add video. So I, I got there and I played all kinds of shows and television shows. And then one morning the translator comes to the room and he goes, OK, time to uh, time to go and uh, pack bags. We we drive, to, we, we go to next gig. I said, OK, great. Where, where is it? He said, Yerevan. I had no idea where that was get all my suitcases and get get in the van and I thought I said how far he said five hours I thought oh, okay five hours in a, in a weird van I can I've got my crossword puzzles I'll be all right oh no it was five hours in a jumbo jet we went to Armenia <laughs> I've got to ask did is it right you got paid in vodka and carpets actually we got paid yeah we got paid in one place in in Turkmenistan they played paid me in carpets in in Russia, they don't they didn't have any money in Moscow, so you got paid in vodka and apple juice. And then in Armenia, they paid me in Russian rubles, and I donated them all back because they were a non-convertible currency. You could, it was illegal to bring them out of the Russian border, so I donated them all back to the Spitak and Leninikan earthquake fund because they just lost forty thousand people in the earthquake the October the year before the December before. And um, so I thought, well, you know, it's dead money anyway. There's not much I can do. I mean, I literally made, I did nine tours of Russia, sold hundreds of thousands, if not millions of concert tickets, and I made 320 quid. <laughs> <laughs> and how did you cope with her being a star in Russia? I loved it. She came with me. I was her, I was her uh, Christiana. <laughs> Couldn't get rid of her. That was the momager. We we put her in the overhead bin on Aeroflot. <laughs> oh yeah, no, I didn't go on every tour. I think I went on about seven of them, but uh, one of them she had Barry Coffing, who was her musical director, who now lives in Texas. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and they put on. I had these backing tapes, and the you know quarter inch two track tapes, and they were supposed to run at fifteen ips inches per second, a certain speed on the old reel to reel. And it clearly said 15 on the box. And there's, you know, Russian 15s, English 15. 
So the bloke up in the sound booth, which in a basketball arena of 23,000 people, that's what I neglected to mention, got to Armenia and they'd sold 11 shows times 23,000 tickets. Uh, the bloke who is now about a quarter of a mile away from me in the sound booth puts the tape on at seven and a half IPS. So I come out ready to sing live to this tape and the tape's going. Oh, what am I going to do? So I just sort of sat down on the edge of the stage like born in a trunk and used my best nine Russian sentences yeah. and kept the audience chatting until they switched the tape to the right speed. I'm talking to Ange and Ruth McCartney and uh, this whole programme's been put together by my producer and also Martin, who is the, the the genius behind what goes on in the McCartney organisation, as in all the technical stuff. That's what Martin's all about. As Apart from also being a hempecked husband and plagued by a mother-in-law. Because when he married you, he got that as well, didn't he? Yeah, he always says, I didn't read the fine print that says, buy, buy one, one, get, get one, one free. <laughs> Tell me something. Let's let's go back to Rembrandt. Christmas must, must have been wonderful there because it was a beautiful house in its own ground and it must have been a traditional Christmas. Yes, it was. It was lovely. Yeah, with a nice Christmas tree and a lovely fire. Do you remember the fireplace in the lounge? I do indeed. I can see it right now. And that now. lovely green carpet that was made all in one piece. That was Mike McGear's idea. He was the brains behind the, you know, the setting up the equipping of Rembrandt. I wasn't even on the scene yeah. then when Paul bought Rembrandt. But uh, I remember the fireplace when I was about 15 or 16 and I brought my very first crush, my first boyfriend, Nigel Blakeo, home. And Paul said, all right, well, he said, where are you going? I said, we're going to the New Brighton fair we're going on the ferry and we're going to new brighton and we're going to do this and we're going to go over to liverpool he said oh are you you are are you he says get get him in here sit him down we sat him down on that long black fake leather couch and um he was wearing my dad's slippers i'll never forget those brown check horrible slippers and he stood in the fireplace with his right elbow on the mantelpiece and he said so uh what, what are your intentions towards my little sister this poor fellow going to caldy can you imagine he's come round to take me out for a bus ride and an ice cream and he's getting grilled by a beetle and we're still friends he didn't hold it that much against me he didn't he didn't marry me i think that was our one and only date but you know I've got to say that um, one of the nicest things, uh, ladies and gentlemen, about um, Ange in particular, because Ruth was only a little girl, was the fact that when I was at the Shakespeare, I would always look after every artist that came on because, you know, it doesn't matter how rich or how successful they are, but they always get lonely. And I used to say, I'm here for you if you want me to take you out and show you around or I'll leave you alone. And they always wanted to be shown around. So I always went to the Wirral. And I don't know how it started, but I used to ring Ange and Jim up and say, I've got the new Seekers or I've got uh, Sprinkler Revival or I've got whoever I've got. And you say, yeah, call him for a cup of tea. And it was that that and Parkgate ice cream was the highlight of their trip to Liverpool. Well, highlight of my trip to Liverpool is still Parkgate ice cream. Nichols. But Ange, how did that start? How did I start coming to your home for a cup you of tea? You were friends with a lady who was friends with Jill Rowlands who lived across the road from me. There was a lady, I can't remember her name, but she was a, a big influence in your life. You talked about her in your book, and she was friends with Jill Rowlands, my neighbour. And by some means, she brought you to Jill Rowlands' house. Cherry and Hinton, it was called. The house was called Cherry Hinton, yeah. And it, Jill Rowlands, um, her husband was a big, heavy-set guy that worked for Littlewoods. 
Welshman. A big Welshman who used to have Sunday lunches where he'd thump the table and... Yep. Yeah, don't you remember? You used to visit them and for some reason either she called me and said, come across, I'd like you to meet Pete Price. Price, or she brought you over to me. I'm not sure which. And you had that lovely long fur coat in those days. Shh, don't tell anybody you had a fur coat. But so, so did I. Especially not Pamela Anderson. Don't, don't oh, no. say fur coat. <laughs> <laughs> no, we won't tell Pamela Anderson you had a fur coat. But yeah, that's... And that's how it started. Yeah, that's how it started. Yeah. Neighbourhood Housewives in Heswell. The Real Housewives of Heswell. Oh, yeah, that could be a new series, yeah. yeah. We did a, a fabulous tour together with somebody, we won't even mention his name, but he was a big star and sadly was disgraced and is in prison right now, which is very sad in the respect that um, what we knew of the person, he was a nice bloke and we didn't know anything about his seedy side. But we, we had a, an amazing tour and we had a lot of fun on that tour, oh, didn't, didn't we? did we ever? What about the rhinoceros? Do you remember that? I do, are you being serious? Right, let me tell everybody. There was a rhinoceros in the hotel. We decided to nick it. It was a full-size rhinoceros. It was a stuffed one or whatever it was. And they tried to winch it up to a dressing room. But then when we went to Stonely... Um, uh, was it Stonely? Yeah, it was a Stonely. No, the Wakefield Theatre Club. I was singing my way and everyone was laughing at me. And I was getting very angry at people laughing at me in a serious song. And next minute... The rhino was being pushed on the stage behind me. It had been robbed by the, uh, the, the, the roadies and it was there with me. I remember Mickey May making, getting an extra long pole so he could just push it on behind you. <laughs> Ruth, when did you first decide to leave England? Um, it was when my relationship that I was in went pear-shaped and my um, ex... And his friends had my mini nicked five times in six weeks, and I kept the police kept calling saying, "We found your J Reg mini, and this time there's no seats in it, or all the wheels have been taken off, or it was left on the Hammersmith Bridge Road without a steering wheel." And of course, every time I'd have to go and sort that out. So he was one of those guys where if he couldn't be with me, he didn't want anyone else to be, and it was just it all just got crappy. And we had some friends, some dear friends that we still do, the Crawford family down in Sydney, Australia. And they all said, if it ever gets too much and you can't handle it, um, there's a place, there's a fold-out sofa for you in Sydney. So that was one of those. I came home from, I was working five jobs at the time. I was working in the morning, uh, waking up. I was the wake-up call operator for Mike Reed on BBC Radio 1. Started calling him at 4 a.m. every 10 minutes to make sure he was awake. And then I was cleaning offices in the West End and then I had a, a day job at Roundel Productions and I was uh, teaching dance at Strawberry Studios in London and then at night I went to the Admiral Codrington pub in SW19 and pulled pints till half past ten and then cleaned out the kitchen and then four o'clock in the morning started all over again. And I thought, God, you know, what, what am I doing? And we rang the Crawfords in Australia and said, were you serious? And they said, yeah. And so we got two tickets, what was left of what we had, um, had a big garage sale, a big jumble sale, sold all our stuff and got two one-way tickets and went to Australia, and that was 1980, September 1982. And your life changed again. Life changed again. Oh, yeah. Yes, then we worked for Santa Claus Photographs in Sydney. Oh, yeah, we, we processed... We worked for the <laughs> one-hour photo lab in Newtown in Sydney, and they had 14 different... Um, Shopping centres, shopping malls, and Santa sitting on them on the throne with kids, and they take pictures, you know, 35 millimetre film, and they'd send us in 
in envelopes with these little slips. Little boy, little boy, blue shorts. Little girl, blonde pigtails. You know, and we'd match the order to the pictures coming out the one-hour thing and batch them all up and mail them out and do all that stuff. And was it weird going to Australia and not being known after all the publicity you'd had over the uh, years? No, not really. I was just so exhausted by then, so tired out with everything, you know. Um, I was just very happy to arrive, and our dear friends, the Crawfords, met us, and we'd gone the pretty way because of the cheapest seats we'd gone. You know, we from... went on UTA French Airlines, yeah, yes. uh, Gatwick, oh. Paris... Uh, Paris, Bahrain, Bahrain, Singapore, Singapore, Jakarta, Jakarta, Darwin, Darwin, Sydney. We left on Monday. We got there on Thursday afternoon. It was lovely. And there was a baby in front of us the whole way screaming. (laughs) Every plane we got on, there was a screaming baby. I think it was specially provided for us to keep us on the alert. (laughs) We drank our duty-free three times between (laughs) leaving London and getting to Sydney. Yeah. Uh, and the Crawfords met us off the flight and said, we've got a lovely surprise for you. We're going to the Sydney Opera House to show you around. <sighs> we've arranged a backstage tour of the Sydney Opera House on the way home to the house. And oh. then when we got home to their house eventually, it was surprise. All the lights went on and they had all their neighbours and everybody that had ever heard of us. And it just went on. And they had the most horrendous rainstorm. There was, we haven't had rain like this for 90 years. We had pots and pans on the bed, on the fold-out couch, catching drips Cat- from the rain. Oh, it was so funny. Because little be- unbeknownst to us, they, when we'd said, all right, we'll be there in three weeks, they sat too with all their neighbours and plywood and all this other stuff, and they actually built the extension on the house that we were going to live in. <laughs> How long did you stay in Australia? Six months. We couldn't uh, get extensions, visas, visas to stay any longer. But during that time, I was in touch with my niece, Beryl Kendall, who lived in Orange County. Yeah. And uh, she said, well, if you can get yourself here, there's always a home for you. You and Uncle Jim looked after me and my clan when we were in our early days. And so we managed to, we saved a little bit from working this Santa Claus photographs thing. And we got ourselves to LAX, which was another big surprise, like five lanes of traffic, and we'd never seen anything like it. And they picked us up and took us to Orange County and made us very, very happy and very comfortable. We were welcome to live. We were welcome to live with them in Laguna until that fateful day when our Ange went upstairs to take a bath and actually fell through the bathtub and into the living room. <laughs> There was this little person sitting downstairs having Sunday breakfast and this little leg waving through the ceiling <laughs> the bathtub had given way. I'm like, skip a meal, Ange. I'm flabbergasted at that. <laughs> Got photographs. The picture you've just painted is just horrendous. Well, at least it was only a leg sticking through. <laughs> Could have been worse. And yeah. have you ever been near to getting married Good again? heavens, no. Don't be ridiculous. <laughs> Why? 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 You're a great woman. Hey? Pardon? You're a great woman. Oh, I'm Why a great not? woman. Find me a great man. No, she always says they're just another load of laundry. Another load of laundry, yes. That's right. Are you asking, Pete, finally? Are you going to propose, Pete, after all these years? I've got a few bobs, so maybe maybe that would be a good marriage made in heaven. You both get plenty of sleep. All right, then. Uh, right, we're going to pick a piece of music now. We're going to pick Golden Slumbers. You've got a story about Who this? Who has? I have, yes. This is, uh, I love this song. It was one of my uh, piano teacher's tortures on me, and she gave me the sheet music, and I was probably about, oh, six, I would think, five or six. 
and didn't read music, and uh, neither did Paul at the time. So I was strangling this thing for days on the piano, and he finally came in. He said, oh, shove up, so let me sit next to you on the piano stool. What on earth piece of music are you murdering? So I said, well, it's called Golden Slumbers, and I have no idea. So he said, all right, well, let's start. Where is it? He said, he said well, there's no, that one's not on a line, and that one's on in between spaces, and that one's it. So that one's a C. I know that one's middle C, and I know middle C is nearest the lock on the piano. That's the note above the lock. So let's start there. So we worked it out and figured out the melody, and, you know, he said, oh, he said, that's really nice. Does it have words? And I said, no, it's an old traditional, like, 15th century or whatever it was piece of music and he said oh he said I might, I might put that on a record when did you say it was written and I said oh, I don't know 1497 or 1536 or something he said oh that's even better because I don't have to pay royalties so it became um the other half of Carry That White. I'm talking to um Ange and Ruth McCartney and uh the lovely Martin is producing in the American side and Jonathan is producing in the British side this is a a collaboration uh, for you to listen to some fabulous Beatle music and also stories. Let me take you back, Ange, to a fabulous night. And I didn't say, well, I didn't say thank you enough to you. You brought Jim to the night that I raised money to build a Beatles statue, the first That's one ever. That's right. I remember. And it still stands today. And we were the first ones ever to do it. And you came in. I always remember you were bidding on a few things. And we raised £2,000. £1,200 went to the statue to Arthur Dooley. And the £800 left went to uh, Frankie Vaughan, who gave it to the boys. Club. That's right. Oh, gosh, yeah. lovely? I think we, we bid and won a painting that night, I think. I can't remember for sure. Do you follow... The boys, I mean, you know, over the years with John Lennon splitting and Ringo split and them, have you followed them all have, or has there been stages in your life where you've left No, it? not at all. I've always been extremely interested in all four of them and their families and their movements and career and private life and everything. Yeah, We, we actually blog about all of them every day on McCartney.com. It's an active live <laughs> blog and Martin and I scour the world press every day for not just that but what you know mary and stella and what all the kids are doing and the wives and the charities and all of the outreach mm. this thing called the beatles is really it's a worldwide family it's it's still a juggernaut mm. and it's just amazing the people that you meet worldwide who whom it's touched and mm. you know the good they're doing like the linda mccartney center and like what paul's been doing recently for alder hay um, it just it's the gift that keeps on giving. So, no, we're very, very involved and interested. Tell us about the fateful day you lost your house with the earthquake. Oh, yes, that was in... Uh, what, what was the year, Ruth? It was the 4.31am on January the 17th, 1994. 1994. Um, we lived up in the valley, the San Fernando Valley, up above L.A., and uh, the earthquake happened, this epicentre of it was only about four miles from us in Northridge. And it was, at, uh, we'd all been watching television that evening downstairs. We lived together, all of us, Martin, Ruth and I then, as we do now. And I lived downstairs and they lived upstairs. And when it got to sort of midnight and television, Martin said, well, come on, girls, bed. We've got work to do tomorrow. And Ruth was going to do a radio show in... L.A. that next morning with another Michael Jackson, a man called Michael Jackson, who was a long-standing radio personality. And uh, 
She said, no, I, I don't really want to go to bed somehow. I had a terrible headache and so did Martin. Yeah, Martin went to bed. Ruth stayed down for a little bit. I went to bed and eventually I, I guess we all turned in. And at 4.30 in the morning, I wakened up and I sat up, swung my legs over the side of the bed and at 4.31, this happened. It just shook the house up and down and side to side and a big glass-framed picture that was above my bed, behind my head, fell down onto the bed and shattered and went right through the eider-down and even into the mattress. If it had still been lying down, it just would have been toast. And I sat up for some reason. The interesting thing about the day before, too, was I had gone to, like, the, the local Home Depot, they call it, like, garden centre, and I just got a beer in my bonnet and I thought, I'm going to make earthquake emergency kits and I'm going to get bottled water and this, that and the other and I'm going to get a wrench to switch off the gas and I'm going to get flashlights and batteries. And on the Sunday afternoon, I had done all that, as had Anne. She'd gone into her offices in mm. L.A. to catch up on some filing. Yeah, and just before I left the office, I remember thinking, something made me turn back. I was just going to lock the office door and I turned back and went in. And I looked in my file and found the leaflet that said what to do in an emergency. And I made 14 photocopies of it and I put one on everyone's chair in the office suite and went home. And Ruth said, that's funny, you should do that. I've just had the same feeling today. And what do you know, 4.31 the next morning, it happened. The good part was Snoop Doggy Dog was living in our uh, block of flats area and, of course, we had no electricity, no gas, no po no phone, no television, no power, no nothing for days. And so Snoop was like, we got to party, man. So he calls somebody who knows a bloke who knows a bloke who brings a limousine. And the boot was full of ice and bottles of gin and tonic and grapefruit juice pulled up by the swimming pool. And we just had a big Snoop doggy dog party for I don't know how long, but a couple of days. It was great. Did you... Um, because I, I, apparently, if I remember rightly, the payout was you didn't get any money. I got a hundred. I got a hundred dollars eventually, and I was told that. Oh no, I think it was two hundred, um, because they said, uh, "Yeah, well, you haven't provided sufficient proof that you've lost everything." <laughs> I mean, I had the photographs. That's all I had, and you know, the car was crushed like a tin of beans, smashed furniture, and yeah. the whole thing, and. Uh, I got a, a cheque for $200 with a letter accompanying it saying, uh, keep this. Uh, buy a vacuum? No, no, it was a telephone. You can buy a telephone and what? Oh, a vacuum cleaner. Vacuum cleaner. And, and Now, I needed a vacuum cleaner. Didn't have anything to vacuum. And a telephone. And the worst part of it was? I got taxed on the $200. They sent us a tax bill of, of the 200 as income. How did you bounce back after that? Because we joke about it, talk about it, and you're happy about it and as we're talking, but it must have been horrendous It time. was, and uh, I was working for USA Today, the Gannett newspaper at the time, and I couldn't even get in touch with my boss for about five days. And when I did, I said to him, you know, I just need to get away from here. Can, do you think I could get a transfer to anywhere else? And he said, well, leave it with me. So he got on to various other Gannett newspapers and finished up finding me a position in Nashville with the Tennessean, which was a, a fellow, you know, group member newspaper. So I interviewed with them over the phone and they said, yeah, you sound fine. And Eric says you'll do for what we need. So uh, when can you get here? And I said, well, I'll sort that out. So just about managed to scrape the ticket money together, get a flight out, 
Uh, Ruth and Martin loaded up the truck with what little we had left, which is mainly books and a few pots and pans and... One guitar. Yeah, one guitar, one pregnant cat in a cat basket and a few bits and pieces. Not much was left. Most, most everything was a wreck. Clothes we had. Yeah, we had some clothes. And so they drove out. I flew out and stayed with a friend for a day or two, started my job. And they followed me out a few days later. And Martin got a job at the airport and Ruth got jobs doing catering. And then they both started doing songwriting on Music Row and giving up all the publishing for like a few dollars a week, but whatever. But it just helped us to survive. And during that time, somebody said, uh, we, we met an old Australian friend, Brian Cadd, who was out in America. And he said, have you heard about this thing called a Yahoo so he and Ruth got together. Ruth, you tell Pete the rest of this story. Yeah, I went to um, Brian's house to write some songs, and he said, oh, man, I've got to, got to look for something in my computer. And he, he says, oh, look at this, it's a Yahoo. And I said, what's a Yahoo? And he said, oh, it's like, a, it's like the world's biggest library book. All the pages are connected. You click on the blue words with underlines, and it takes you to somewhere completely different. It's like the bloody magical mystery tour, mate. So I said, well, what's powering it? And he said, oh, this thing called the interweb, or I don't know. You got to get a modem and you plug it in the phone thing and it goes ba-doom, 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 and then you're you got you're onto the Yahoo and that's all he knew about it. So I went to the library and said, you know, what do you know about the internet? Blah blah blah. They didn't have any books, so they ordered them in from all over Washington D.C. and Florida. And there were t- there were only twenty two books on HTML code at that time, and so I ordered them all and we were allowed to have them for three weeks. And Martin, God bless him, sat in the house. And learned this thing called code and started building websites. And that was the end of 94. So then, boom, all of a sudden we're in the web business. It's it's amazing how, you you know, you just sort of, life is just a series of crossroads and red threads. And you just hope you keep making the right turn and not the wrong turn. How did iFans start? Well, that was exactly how iFans started. We started building websites for friends and clients and... Um, people would come to the websites and click on the email button and all of those emails would flood into my email inbox when I had a CompuServe email account. And so I would then have to come home from work at night and cut, copy and paste them into XLS spreadsheets and say, well, this spreadsheet belongs to Andrew Gold and that's Fleetwood Max and this one's David Cassidy's and this one's whoever else's, uh, all old friends, you know. And then in 96, FileMaker Pro, which is a software, said, oh, we're going to let you publish databases to the Internet. So we figured out how to do that so that people could put in their name, address, city, state, zip, phone number, birthday and email address. And it would be captured and actually sent to you in the form of a form, not an email that you had to cut and copy and paste. And so between 95 and 98, we spent every waking hour on iFans, and we launched it in 1998. Um, we're revamping it. We're doing a whole mobile application thing, which is too complicated to go into. But um, we've got 6.4 million registered users of the 1,200 bands and celebrities that use it for their email and fan club system. So it was just born out of okay. copy-paste. Just keep doing it. Absolutely. Let's pick another piece of music. What's the story behind my favourite Beatles song of all is Long and Winding Road? What's the story behind that? Well, Jim and I used to drive with Ruth, of course, up to Macrihanish to the farm when Paula was up in Scotland. And, you know, when you get past 
oh, the northern parts of England and over the border and into Scotland, the road just goes on and on and on and on. And Jim always used to say, God, we're on the long and winding road. And he'd nod off and have a little rest, a little sleep. And we'd get there and obviously Linda would make us welcome with food and whatnot. And it was just a part of one of the journeys we used to make so often. And event we always talked about it, that stretch of the road that you thought would never end. And uh, it's probably a lot more built up now, but it certainly wasn't then. And uh, eventually, when Paul wrote that song, it just, oh, it, you know, I first heard it and Jim was not in very good shape. It just, it's very emotional for me. It always has been. It's a beautiful song. Yeah, it was a phrase that Jimmy Mack coined. He's like, oh, once you got past Lancaster and then up to Glasgow and then you took that big left to go down the Mull of Kintyre, you'd be like, oh, the it's long, long and winding, winding road. road. I'm talking to Ruth and Andrew McCartney. Looking back, um, Ruth, do you wish, I mean, if Jim had lived a lot longer, do you wish your life had gone in a different direction? I, I'm just one of those people that has no regrets. I mean, I would have liked to have been able to accomplish more for, you know, charities that I support and family that I'd love to spoil and buy them all big houses and stuff like that. I think my only regrets are that I'm a serial entrepreneur, and as soon as I launch and do something, I'm on to something else. Um, but I don't know that I would have accomplished that if I'd have stayed in my same environment. I might have. I don't know. But I just, you know, I'm I'm just thrilled to be above ground and breathing and healthy and have these two in my life and you. You old sod. I do love you. It's a nice thing I do. To say. I always have. You know, when I was a kid, I had a horrible crush on you and Peter Brown from the office. Nobody told me. Nobody let me in on the. No, Peter Brown yes. as well. <laughs> Nobody let me in on the seat. Well, I've got news for you. When I was twelve, I had a crush on uh, David Casty, so we had a lot yeah, in there common. You go. Nobody let you in on that secret either. So you've moulded a life now in Hollywood. You finished up in Hollywood. Are you staying there now uh, forever? Not necessarily. Who knows? Not necessarily. I don't know. No, I mean, you know, I've never been to Japan. Um, I learned, I was, I'm, in German they call it Sprachbegab. I'm very lucky in as much as I'm, I'm gifted with being able to understand and speak languages. They're not difficult to me, they're just like maths. I speak lots of languages, well, two, English and rubbish. <laughs> um, so I've got a fascination for Japan. I wouldn't mind spending some time there. I spend a lot of time in Russia, as you know, lived in Germany. So moving, and we've just opened an office in Vienna, moving somewhere is, it doesn't hold any fears for me. I mean, you know, it's just as long as you've got your creature comforts, a clean bed, a clean bathroom, the people that love you, and if you can take your cats, that's even better. So if somebody made us all just a fantastic offer to go and live in, you know, I don't know, Greece or Japan or Australia. Or Ashby de la Zouche. Or, yes, Walton on the Nays. Yes. Indeed. Um, I don't know. I'd have to take it in, all into consideration. I'm, I'm not a, a places person. I'm a people person. So. Do you ever think of coming back? Would you ever even consider coming back? To Liverpool, back? yeah. Absolutely. I love Liverpool. Don't know that I would, because of the weather, because I'm Nesh now, I'm spoiled with the sunshine, I don't know that I'd no. want to be there all winter if I had a choice. But Liverpool is, I'm very proud to be a scouser. It's, yeah, me too. Yeah, it's a good thing. Coming back to Liverpool, uh, you both came back with the book, 
which was a great read and still is a great read. Were, first of all, were you shocked at the changes? I in was Liverpool? indeed pleasantly surprised because everything was much better. And uh, the sense of humour and the folks hadn't changed, but uh, some of the locality, oh, locations had. Um, it's just been, you know, gentrified a little, but it's kept the old, lovely old brick and cobblestone charm. Tell you what I was, I loved was, you know, just being able to go through Liverpool One. We stayed down on, on Seal Street opposite the, uh, the old Mayflower, my favourite Chinese restaurant. Um, if you go in the, you know, past two a.m., he says, "You, you, uh, you pay now. You, you pay now. Eat later." <laughs> and uh, I was wandering around Liverpool One, and there was old Dill and Bill Moen's pub. The Eagle is still there. It's a beautiful little French bistro now. But that's what I like is that, you know, the. Um, it's it's just they've they've kept the old pubs and the old facades and but they've put new businesses in those buildings and I think that's great. Now forgetting the politics of what happened, we won't even discuss that. But were you pleased with the book, Ange? Uh, yeah. <laughs> she's she's very self-effacing. She just thinks it's a collection of stories and can't really imagine why anybody finds it. No, interesting. I, I really can't. I reread it recently just as an exercise to see what it was all about, and I thought. Oh, yeah. But, you know, it's my life, so I don't see it like other people do. I have started another one now, another book, but just a short, small one. Just like you. Short, small and funny. And during the first book, did you find it cathartic or did you find it hard to write? Uh, A bit of both, actually. I got upset over some things, you know, and I delved back into my memories about when Jim proposed and little things about, you know, when Ruth had a her operation, and I thought I was going to lose her, stuff like that. That made me sad. I had nightmares at night and so on, but I realised that it was all part of life, so I had to get cracking and get it down. Um, so, yeah, it was a bit cathartic and it was a bit a little, little bit disturbing, but it also evoked a lot of happy memories. I mean, you know, it got you and I back together again and I found Frida Kelly found me and... Lots of fun things happened as a result of it. Mm-hmm. Tell us the story behind the song Blackbird. Ah, OK. Well, my mum was staying with us at Rembrandt. She'd been ill and Paul had said, why don't you get an ambulance and bring your mum through the Mersey Tunnel to stay with you because you can look after her and so on. And actually, the day she arrived was her 80th birthday and everybody had sent flowers. And do you remember the, the landing at Rembrandt, the three ways the stairs went up? And there were flowers Mm -hmm. all the way up the stairs. And my mum was lifted out of an ambulance into a sort of sling chair thing. And the guys carried her up the stairs. And she opened her eyes and she said, looks like a ruddy funeral parlour. I'm not dead yet. (laughs) Yeah, she wasn't a great sleeper, so... Yeah, well, Paul came home to Rembrandt in the middle of the night one night and he'd just finished recording in London and he'd come up to us and he wanted someone to talk to. We were all fast asleep. And he went and tapped on my mum's door, the little back bedroom, and he said, Are you awake, Edie? And she said, Well, I am now. So he went in, sat on the end of the bed and evidently made a cup of tea and sat and chatted with her. He said, How do you sleep, Edie? And she said, Oh, not bad, but, you know, I listened to this bird in the garden. And he said, What bird? So she said, Oh, there's a bird that sings about this time every night. And it's very interesting. And she said, sometimes I feel I could throw rocks at it to make it shut up, but it really is lovely. So Paul ran downstairs and he found Mike's Grundig reel-to-reel tape recorder and brought it up and sat on the end of the bed and opened the window wide 
until Julie on cue, the bird started to sing. So he recorded it and kept it, and sometime later he made the song Blackbird. And I've actually got a, uh, a cassette tape that somebody sent me from the studio where Paul is just about to record it, and he says, this next one's for Edie, it's called Blackbird. And I always get a real thrill when I hear it, you know, because I know it was written for my mum. Tell me, Ruth, who was your favourite Beatle, apart from Paul? Your brother, because you adopted him. Who's your favourite? I mean, as a child, you know, I didn't really... I wasn't exposed to Ringo or George that much because they lived in Weybridge or Esher in Surrey. So the, the other Beatle, apart from Paul, that I had the most to do with, of course, would be John because when he would come up to Liverpool... Um, you know, he didn't have a home there, he didn't have family there. He'd moved Auntie Mimi down to Pool in Dorset. So he'd stay with us um, in the guest room or whatever. So uh, probably John, just because he taught me how to ride a bike and he would refer to fans as customers and he was the one that, you know, I had some, the most to do with out of the other. I mean, I loved them all. They were like, you know, Dutch uncles to me. But I didn't really spend that much time with Ringo or with George um, so outside of Paul, obviously, you know, I had the most to do with John, so that would probably be my answer, but... What about you, Ange? Uh, yeah, I would say the same, actually, because with John staying with us a few times, I got to know him a little better. Well, maybe maybe not. Did anybody ever really know John? But I saw a side of John that many people never saw. I saw him as a, a sort of frightened little genius... And he would lash out at people to cover his own fears and anxieties and say things that I'm sure he regretted later. But uh, to me, I, I loved him. I thought he was great. And, of course, I admired his wit and his style of writing and everything was just tip-top for me because I've always been aware of not being formally educated and I've always been sort of interested in anybody who was one up the ladder from me and John was several up the ladder. So, uh, yeah, I, again, with Ringo and George, I didn't really meet up with them a great deal except, you know, after gigs and things, and that's not really a time when you get close to anybody. So uh, it would be John. I mean, we go to their houses at Christmas or on birthdays and things or yeah. before premieres in London, they, you know, they'd come round to Paul's house and stuff. So it wasn't like we were strangers, but it was never really as close as we were with As one-on-one, on one, no. Mm -hmm. Tell us where the idea came from of McCartney tea. Uh, oh, about, probably about five years ago or thereabouts, we had a friend. We were having a 4th of July get-together and barbecuing in the back garden and cocktails were flowing, people having wines and beers. And one of our friends, who is a recovering alcoholic, said, no, I'll just have a nice pot of tea. Hey, how about Mrs McCartney's tea? What's more English than tea? And what's more British than the name McCartney? Why don't we... So he, he was in the promotion business, and he said, let me scout around and see what I can find out. So he found some people in Arizona who developed... Brands, brands of tea, but of course we, we couldn't afford it and we couldn't really raise enough funding to, to get going. So we sort of, we registered the name of the company and the trademark and all that stuff and started it somewhat haphazardly and uh, it jogged along for a little bit and then more recently, since Ruth and Martin have become much more adept at the whole business of branding social and media. social media and all that sort of stuff, uh, we got into it in a, in a bigger way 
And when Facebook came along and I signed up and told people about it through that, that helped it take off a great deal. You know, I've got 5,000 friends on Facebook and Ruth has 5,000. And, of course, a lot of them are Beatle fans. And so we named a lot of the brands of the tea, like Abbey Road Apple and, you know... Strawberry Fields. Strawberry Fields and stuff like that. Beetle-y kind of flavour... Uh, titles to go with the flavours. And uh, that I've, I was looking at the list today. I've got one customer, Judith Kristen, who is uh, on the way to... No oh, well, I think she's in Norway today, and she has ordered eight times from me. I looked at the list of repeat customers, and she's had eight orders from me. And some of them are like ten packets of tea. And uh, it's just grown from there. We just did last... Uh most recently, we did the Arizona Food and Wine Experience in Phoenix, Arizona, which is a big USA Today event. And we did the uh, tea and talk. And so it's like today, like this, like the program tonight, it's these stories over a cup of tea. And there's beautiful, the English Rose Tea Room in Chandler, Arizona, did the typical. She got up dead early and made scones and another lady made uh, homemade lemon curd. So, we, you know, we did this whole tea and talk and... Um, talked about, you know, the, the traditions of afternoon tea and British tea and then the Beatles and McCartney and whatever. It's about an hour and a half event and programme. And again, we're able to give a big chunk of the proceeds to the Linda McCartney Centre. So we enjoy doing yeah. them. It's great. Talking about the tea, over the years you've had fantastic life, but you've had a, a lot of bad luck over some things. And one one thing I was very disappointed for you was, and I thought it was really exciting, you were about to open in Japan and then that dreadful, dreadful tsunami. That's right, hit. yes. Yep. Funnily enough, the, the guy that was trying to organise all of that for us got in touch with us just again today. This morning. Yep. Stuart Cohen. It's almost he like said he's, he's back in business and he said, I've been watching your progress with the tea and the wine and I'm travelling for about the next two weeks and when I get home, I'd like to get with you and help you to get distribution and get established and spread the brand. So isn't it funny you should mention that? And he got in touch with us just today mm. to see if we can reinstitute that whole thing. So looking back, Angie, it has been a roller coaster of a journey. I suppose hasn't it, your so. Life? I, uh, you know, be dead boring if it wasn't. Wasn't it? Uh, dead boring. Who wants to sit on the couch and just watch Corriori Street for the rest of your life? So tell us about some of the talent your husband has, who is um, the driving force behind this show in America. Jonathan's my producer here, and Martin's the producer in America. Tell us the driving force. What, what's he about? Well, he grew up in Germany in the you know late 60s, early 70s, listening to, oh, I don't know, Led Zeppelin and Foreigner and Journey, and he's he's a rock guy and has an incredible voice for four octaves, um, really just one of those classic rock voices, and moved to Munich, and because his father, he's an army brat, so his father was an American soldier, his mother is German, and so he speaks, as you know, completely accent-free. So, you know, he got hired by Harold Faltermeyer to come in and do music on Top Gun and Beverly Hills Cop and all of those things, and, you know, just rocked, rock and rolled away. He actually just stepped up to the microphone, funnily enough. Hello, Pete. You actually deserve a medal living with those two. Yeah, you know, I get it, stere <laughs> I get it stereo. You know, if it's not in the right side from Ruth on the taller aspect, it's from the little one on the left, you know, <laughs> scrabbing my arms and listen. Uh. <laughs> it's never dull. <laughs> so anyway, Martin uh, did a lot of movie soundtracks and commercials and... 
those kinds of things. And then we moved here, and he's in the middle of a trilogy of albums. Um, it's kind of Harry Potter for grown-ups, he calls it. It's a, it's a concept musical um, based around the Book of Mirrors is the first album, and the, the band's called Geist. And then there'll be the Book of Shadows and then the Book of Light. And a very famous rock star, can't tell you who because he's sworn to secrecy, but the guy has sold tens of millions of records for one of the one of the bands I just mentioned, actually, if anyone was taking notes. He heard Martin's voice and said, oh, please, I will volunteer to go into my studio and Capitol Records and mix the vocals because I want Martin's voice to sound right on this record. And so this multi-Grammy-winning rock star, uh, who is a fan of Martin's, mixed his vocals for him for... Literally a bag of tea. <laughs> right, tell us the story behind Lucy in the Sky. So Julian Lennon was a kid and going to school, um, as you do, and the art teacher said to him, she said, all right, well, this afternoon we're going to make a little painting of a place you like, a person you like, and a thing you like. So Julian had a, a secret little, I wouldn't say crush, but a, a little thing for this girl called Lucy Vodden, who was in his class. And so he thought, well, I'll draw Lucy. Where shall I put her? Hmm, I'll put her, oh, she, you know, in the, she likes rainbows and all of that stuff. So I'll put her in the sky. And, oh, I know, girls like shiny things. I'll give her some diamonds. So he did this painting and he took it home to John. And John said, oh, that's nice. You know, what's that? And he said, it's Lucy in the sky with diamonds. And John said, oh, that's a nice name. And he told him the story. He said, oh, that, make, that might make a good song title. And literally that was the end of that. So John wrote Lucy in the Sky with Diamonds based around what is now a fairly famous painting owned by Roger Waters from Pink Floyd. I'm talking to Ruth and Ange McCartney. We're coming towards the end of this um, little journey we've been in. And the ridiculous thing is we could go on forever because it, it just never ceases to amaze me um, when you get some people like we are together and that we've all had a wealth of stories in our life, which is so important. And you've got a million stories because, of course, Ruth was just growing up. You, as a, um, uh, as a married lady, what, what would be the one memory you would take with you? Well, probably the moment that I lost Jim, when he finally breathed out and all the lines went away from his face, the pain went. And I, I'm sorry to be sort of talking to you on a downer, but that was very important to me. Um, Mike McGear's first wife, Angie, and her daughter, Abby, were beside the bed, and Ruth and I holding Jim's hands. And he just went, Phew. And little Abby spoke up and said, Oh, look, Poppy stopped. She used to call Jim Poppy. Poppy stopped, she said. And within seconds, the lines just went out of Jim's face. It was amazing how the, the pain just disappeared. Yeah, if you, if you tell somebody who's never experienced somebody actually dying in their arms or in front of them, it's a great life experience to have. They yeah. go, oh, God, no, don't want to see somebody no, die. No, it was Ooh. peaceful. But in those circumstances when he'd been in so much just stress terrible and pain, pain. And mm. horrible, you know, from arthritis, um, it was just great to just see him lose literally 10 years in 10 and minutes. Look like a young man again. Andrew McCartney, Ruth McCartney. Martin in America, Jonathan over here. I hope that the program we put together tonight, because it's been a lot of hard work from some people backstage, 
to bring to you some memories and some fabulous music. Um, and I just, it, it's a piece of social history now. We have put it in stone. Great. How about that? Jolly good. I really hope you enjoyed that podcast. Have you ever thought of joining us? If you subscribe, it costs you nothing. And we have a fantastic backlog of over 90 interviews. Why not join us? It's great. Go on a walk. Listen to me. Wherever you are, I can be with you. It's Pete Price, the best of Pete Price.